This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Master. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. really the big question right now. What kind of showdown? Will there be a showdown between the United States and China when it comes to trade? Certainly a lot of back and forth right now. Let's bring in former Democratic U.S. Senator Max Baucus with us once again. He was also U.S. Ambassador to China under President Obama. He joins us on the phone uh, from Washington, D.C. Senator Baucus, um, nice to have you back with us. You bet, Carol. What do we need? Good to hear your voice. Yeah, it's great to hear your voice. Tell me, because I feel like folks who have actually been in China understand, you know, the government have been really helpful to us in trying to understand what's going on in this potential trade war uh, between the two nations. How do you see it? What insight? You're there in Washington. What are you hearing? Essentially, China is um, getting bounced in their step. The winds at their back. Uh, China's rising. They're proud of their reemergence, if not dominance, in the in the world of history, and they're pursuing their economic goals very, very aggressively. Essentially, with a, something called "Made in China 2025," which are the new technologies of the future that'll help their country grow and prosper and their people develop. That's basically what they're up to. In the meantime, as they pursue that strategy. They made it difficult for American companies doing business in China. They uh, they um, make it uh, they limit market access. They sometimes uh, buy a lot of American companies, the technology companies that have the technologies that they want. They also subsidize those same industries. So they're they're loaded for bear. And uh, we Americans um, have a legitimate complaint that they do deny market access. They do put excessive pressure on us. But they're they're not going to go away, China. They're this, they're very strong and they're going to stand up. Ambassador Baucus, this is not like, or is it like the concerns and worries that we had about Japan go back uh, a few years ago, a few decades ago, right when they were buying up Rockefeller Center and real estate in New York, and we were worried about their economic and corporate might, um, worried about technology transfer. Um, this is, you know, some of the things that we're concerned about with China. These are different stories. Yeah, it's very different. Um, first of all, China is a larger country. Um, China is a command and control authoritarian country. It's not a democracy like Japan. Uh, so the Communist Party, which runs China, can, can run it in the ways they want to run it. That is, um, organize the whole country along this, this, this same focus. And they also, because they're an authoritarian uh, country, not Western democracy, do not practice any kind of transparency. So we Americans have no idea what they're trying to do after, until we see it, after they've done it. It's very different. I, I think that President Trump is on the right track uh, by saying um, that um, enough China is right for, uh, for blowing the whistle on China. I do think, however, that it's uh, these tariffs, the $50 billion tariffs are misdirected. It's not going to hit the target. It's not going to hit the, um, uh, China's ability to, to grow and prosper and develop its uh, Made in China 2025 program. 
on the other hand, it's going to um, hurt a lot of Americans. It's going to hurt a lot of farmers when China retaliates. Right, which were, in fact, a lot of those farmers in states that voted for President Trump, as an aside. You know, what's interesting, too, and and Bloomberg Businessweek had a story over the last couple of weeks that really gave a great history lesson about the role that the United States played in helping China get into the World Trade Organization and really helping China— become the economic might, to become it, you know, more of a, a player on the global stage in hopes of providing and getting to more transparency uh, between the nations and the world, between China and everybody else, and also providing more, you know, hopefully human rights, if you will, will uh, for, for the folks in China. I yeah. mean, those, that was the goal. But what's resulted yeah. is you have this country, China, that's incredibly powerful. Well, um, <laughs> it's ironic because I introduced a bill from the Congress uh, to grant uh, uh, PNTR to China. That's permanent normal trade relationship to China. I helped China get in the WTO for the reasons you mentioned. Right. Namely, if China is part of the world trading system, China's more likely to play by the rules. And that's going to you know, rules-based um, trading system is a lot better than one that's not rules-based. And but China took advantage of it. Actually, China was able to come in under terms that were favorable to China, in effect, kind of a developing country, not a developed country. And we've kind of paid the price, and China took advantage of that. And subsequently, um, China has used the WTO to their advantage, and it, they filed an action against the United States with respect to this 301, alleged 301 action that we're taking, that President Trump is taking. So they're trying to say on the surface that they're staying with the rules. They're staying in WTO. Human rights is a different issue. Um, for many, uh, almost several years, we Americans, we Westerners, we thought the more we engage in China, the more they be more like us. They'd adopt our values and our transparency and rule of law, et cetera. And that was a, a mistaken assumption. Right. China is China. China is different. And we just have to recognize that and deal with China on that basis. We just, we just have about 45, 50 seconds left here. You know, the risk is you know, we could see some kind of new Cold War brewing between the U.S. and China if we're not careful about this. Because as you mentioned, China is on a mission, a long-term plan to develop their domestic industries. And you talk about made in China, you know, over the next decade or so and, and really cultivate their own homegrown businesses and their economy. And they're not going to be swayed from necessarily what else is going on in the world. Um, forgive me, about 25 seconds left. What's the thing we need to be careful <laughs> as uh, as the United States? Just quickly. Well, don't, you know, the whole thing, you know, don't make a big mistake. Don't do anything stupid in the meantime. And keep the channels of communication open. Keep talking. Look for ways to try to find a solution. Sounds like advice my dad used to give me. Don't do anything stupid. <laughs> a good piece of advice. Max Baucus, nice to talk with you again. Former U.S. Senator, former U.S. Ambassador to China in the Obama administration, and, of course, Democratic Senator from the state of Mont Montana, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. So take a letter, Maria. Yes, indeed, he is out with a letter. And this story, among our most read on the Bloomberg today, Jamie Dimon on growth, fixed income, meeting so much. Shanali Basik is investment banking reporter at Bloomberg News. She's on it. She's been going since last night, this morning. 
And lucky for us, she's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You've had a busy day, but this is a big letter. It's, it's a big letter. It's Jamie Dimon. It's Jamie Dimon. He touches on a lot of topics, everything from his own bank to public policy to, you know, and it's a nuanced letter, too. The funny thing about it is... Do we even have to say, uh, for those who might not know, of course, he's the head of J.P. Morgan Chase. <laughs> anyway, when it comes to people in the financial community, and really at the world at large, we listen to what Jamie has to say. It's funny. People compare this letter to Warren Buffett's annual letter, right? And actually... Actually, Warren Buffett has cited Jamie's letter in his own letter before. That's interesting. So yeah. there are two people that really take this seriously and think about it for a while. And, you know, a lot of people sit and absorb and talk about it. People have been talking about this one all day. And so um, a couple takeaways. So, uh, it was pretty nuanced. While he's wildly optimistic about the bank and, you know, a lot of prospects in the world, he says he can grow almost everywhere. That, that's a direct quote, almost everywhere. But at the same time, he does point out a lot of risks in the world, which mm -hmm. is which is very interesting as well. And on the policy what risks? side. Oh, the risks. So the risk, the number one risk, which was also on the risk factors for last year, was Brexit. Ah, so still. Still was on the risk factor list. And then the other risk he mentioned that was interesting was um, cyber. He said the U.S. is pretty unprepared in terms of policy measures. And that's something that really needs to be addressed. He's always been front and center. I always, I remember, was it a few years ago when he talked about the amount of spending that J.P. Morgan was doing on technology and worried about security, privacy, cybersecurity in particular? Absolutely. I mean, technology kind of shown through this ladder for sure. I mean, a lot of the big banks have been looking at a lot of, um, you know, the, the tech revolution really in finance, right? We said earlier in our story earlier today that it's like he wants to be the Amazon of finance, right? So ironically, he quoted, he cited Amazon twice in this letter. Uh, one in the capacity of the healthcare venture that they're doing with Amazon for uh, for employees and right. whatnot. Buffett, Jamie mm -hmm. Dimon, and Jeff Bezos of uh, Amazon. Correct. And um, one with a the, with a Visa Rewards card that they're doing with Amazon as well. So our uh, Chase Reward card. So the thing is, um, you know, technology really did shine through this letter. He talked a lot about his staff of data scientists. Uh, but some of the newer things were the, his plans in what you think a bank would do in, in wealth management and asset management. Um, some of the biggest risks to the financial market included um, the Fed and rising interest rates. Mm -hmm. And if interest rates were to rise too fast, what, what would happen? So that was very prominent. It's kind of, in it's kind of interesting, too, right? Because banks have been waiting for a higher rate environment to make more money off of in terms of what they charge, right? Exactly. For loans and so on. But it, it's always a fine balance. It's a fine balance. And, you know, if you if you tick too far in the wrong direction, then you could head toward, right, right into a recession. So he, he was very clear clear about that as well. What was the most surprising thing to you as you went through the letter? I think at least the most notable thing was definitely when he talked about public policy and when he, you know, trade is in front and center of everybody's mind. And when he talked about China, he had very, very specific recommendations. He said that the U.S. needs to figure out exactly what they want from their relationship with China. And if they don't get it, what they would do in response. And he also said that the U.S. needs to, you know, ally, work with their allies in Japan and in Europe and figure out what they're going to do. Because he said that the, if there's any whiff of a trade war, then that's really going to be upsetting financial markets. It's something everyone's been talking about, but he definitely laid out very clearly how he felt. Did he touch upon politics at all? 
I think that because kind of where I mean, he did touch upon politics in the sense that he touched upon some of the biggest political themes, immigration, trade, isolationism. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was talking about a lot of the post-World War II things that were built on NATO, uh, WTO, and how that really created a peace that we shouldn't disrupt. You know, when you walked in, I said, wow, you've had a really busy day. I know you've been going since the morning and you were working on this story, you know, to the wee hours last night. And you've gotten responses from it, right? Absolutely. I mean, people have definitely been talking about it. The thing is, today the letter came out, but there's just a lot of banking news in general. Yeah. Uh, Barclays was downgraded to by Moody's to one level above junk. Which is shocking. Or maybe not. Um, I don't know. On one hand, you have J.P. Morgan that's sitting here ready to invest in pretty much everything. And on the other hand, you have Barclays with a different set of problems and an activist right now mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, there's definitely... This is not a story about the whole banking sector. <laughs> right, right. Right. And some of those that are, I don't know, bigger, firmer stronger coming off of certainly the crisis and you always put like uh, jp morgan and and goldman as as two that fared really or better than most coming off the crisis and then on the other hand too you also have um hsbc which is shrinking around the world and we had that scoop this week and you have jamie diamond saying he's ready to take jp morgan in different parts of the world that and gain market share in places that they are a little weaker than others gotta ask you since i teased Mm -hmm. it jp morgan jamie diamond he also weighed in on meetings he doesn't like him does he this was actually one of the most fun stories i'm glad you brought this up (laughs) i i last i was i was sitting here this morning and i'm like this is we have to write this he yeah he hates meetings he created these war rooms and you know they're these (laughs) tiny uh you know groups of staff that come in and fix a problem and it could be from anti-money laundering and it has to be done over a span of weeks he's saying you know even though we're a really big bank we're nimble and we have to be nimble if we're going to find solutions from everything from technology to anti-money laundering right uh he said he hates meetings he said just because we're big you know i think he said it's hogwash that just because <laughs> that a big organization i know a few executives who've gotten rid of uh, the chairs in a meeting room so that nobody sits and gets too comfy right it, I mean, it's effective this is kind of a trend throughout the board right i mean i think goldman also is having a lot of uh, you know meetings just impromptu in the middle it. of the training floor as well so well it's a great story shanali basic investment banking reporter at bloomberg news check it out uh on twitter and at bloomberg.com shanali thank you Yeah, a lot of bigwigs in the investment community all gathered for an evening. They're, it's known as the Titans Dinner. Bill Miller was there, Craig Hodges, and a surprise guest. Back with us is Steve Kroll, Managing Director at Monas Crespi Hart & Company. So remind everybody, I always have you do this, what the Titans Dinner is all about. Well, thank you, Carol. Um, for the last 10 years, we've had a, a once-a-month a Titans ten Dinner. 10 years? 10 years, yeah. Wow. Hank Greenberg actually started the idea. But we try and get 20 of the uh, best financiers in uh, New York or ones around the country to come in and share their ideas. And uh, um, it's it's been very special. We've only had to cancel one of them. That was the last one during the snowstorm. It happens, right, and occasionally. And, uh, used to have it at uh, Le Cirque, but that closed. So we have it at a new restaurant, Vaucluse, which is uh, 100 East 63rd. And uh, we had a special guest beside our normal uh, clientele, uh, Richard Fisher, former president of the Dallas Fed, stopped by nice. about halfway through. And he, he was uh, really interested in it since he has tremendous respect for Jerome Powell, the new chairman, which I, I thought was uh, very interesting. He thought there would be two to three rate increases, more, more so to give us room 
in case the economy falters uh, later on. Um, you know, the people they're saying that we're only going to get one increase, he would doubt, and once he doesn't think that we're going to get four increases, but they just want some room to, to ease back. Um, some of the, um, the great ideas, a gentleman who's here right now uh, with me, Joe Warner from Peter B. Cannell, he had uh, CLR, which is an oil company. Two people mentioned KKR, uh, and two people mentioned Ultra ULTA. And these are all uh, great growth companies. Uh, we also had... Wait, wait, wait. And I said to you before we got started, Ulta, I find it fascinating. It's the cosmetics company. It's a retailer or a retailer where you can get all kinds of cosmetics and consumer goods, um, beauty goods, if you will. But it's often on the S&P 500, either biggest decliner, biggest advancer in any given day. I see it pop up a lot. So there's a lot of volatility, a lot of movement in this puppy. There, there is. And it's, you know, when you have these tremendous growth companies... Um, it uh, tends to act that way, and uh, Joe likes it, and some other people from uh, MD SAS like it too. But I thought uh, to back up for a second. Um, was there a general? I always like to. Was there a general mood view about where we are in this market cycle, especially with the increased volatility that we've seen? Uh, since most of the participants are long only, there were not many short. There were no short names, but there were really not too many negative uh, comments. I think we've all been tied up with the volatility of what's going on where it's a headline a day and it could be good could be bad and that's that's uh, been somewhat unnerving because your stocks that go up eight points one day and then down seven points the next isn't something that i've seen in my 46 years but uh uh and then i really? had yeah well not, you've not, never seen this amount of volatility not in a given day. Well, you've seen it. In, you've seen it in one day or a couple of days. And not but, consistently. But I think you, if you take Boeing, you've probably seen eight-point moves in Boeing ten out of the last twelve days. Now that's this is Boeing. This is you know. Yeah. Forget what Trump says on the headline. How and, do you uh, explain it? Is it just gut reaction? It's the emotions. Alg what is algorithms. First of all, the stocks had a tremendous run. The algorithms kick in and, uh, and following the ETFs, and it's just uh, you know when you have. Um, the ETFs which focus on the bigger names like McDonald's and Triple M, uh, Boeing or what have you, you have, you know, dramatic moves. So do the algorithms overstate those moves ultimately? Absolutely. Okay. I, I think they, they run ahead of the ETFs. So you have a lot of false, uh, false moves in the stock. The real move should probably be three points, not uh, – but going back to uh, talking about uh, Trump because he just got uh, – I mean not Trump – uh, Hank Greenberg just got back from China, mm -hmm. and he was not there, but he had called in and said uh, that he thought that uh, Trump's approach is incorrect. He thinks it should be a much more moderate tone first. And uh, you don't start by slapping someone 25 percent uh, and then work backwards. He said you should have gone to China and said we're going to do a 5 percent tariff, then help us out with North Korea and work that way. Um, Trump has obviously adopted a different uh, tone. But, uh, you know, we will live through this, and uh, the earnings are coming out in the next couple of weeks. And Did Hank should... think it was going to lead to a full-blown-out trade he's war? Very, he's very worried. He oh, just he thinks he's worried that, uh, you know, China's a big country. And yeah. We, we, I don't think we can tell them necessarily what to do. I think they can work out the tariff problems, which they will. But, you know, you're talking a superpower, and you have a person that is not being polite so when you go into a room or and, consistent. and consistent, you go into a room and start yelling at somebody, it doesn't always come out the right the right way. All right. So tell me other investment ideas, other themes, trends that you noticed. Well, one I other see. thing was interesting. Bill Miller, who could not make until late, um, had uh, reiterated his Amazon, his Facebook, 
the housing stocks, and uh, that was also mentioned by um, Sass on Lennar. Some of those big tech tech names, they still like it. Still likes it, but he did not mention Bitcoin, and that's interesting because he had a fund that I'm actually invested in that had a lot of Bitcoin, um, and then they spun it off. So he has a Bitcoin fund as well as his regular fund, but it could be that he, he you didn't gotten, ask him about the value? Well, I did, but we, we got caught up in, in, in what's going on. Did he say, pass um, the salt, Steve, and let's move on? K, KKR, as I mentioned, was mentioned right. uh, three times. But I think the overall, and then a lot of people were talking about oils, but mm, they, have not, they have not acted well. They are, we, we think, better. Um, and then the rest is there was some belief that maybe the economy is starting to moderate now a little bit. Uh, you don't see it in auto sales, but you've seen it in ancillary areas, retail and what have you, in um, late February, March, and early April. But that could be just... Uh, um, no, we've been having the conversation that that synchronized global growth, you know, there's it's still optimistic. Things aren't falling apart, but it's we're starting to see it's not as consistent. That's correct. If right. you look around the world. And today, the Atlanta Fed lowered their projection from 2.8 to 2.4. So it's been coming down. It's been coming down. <laughs> it's been coming down. Nice to see you again. Thank you, Carol. Good to have you here. Steve Kroll, he is managing director at Mona's Crespi Heart and Company, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio with a breakdown of the latest Titans dinner. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Bloomberg Markets on this Thursday afternoon. I'm Carol Masser. We're just moments away from a live interview. Emily Chang, anchor of Bloomberg Technology, will sit down with Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg. Of course, Facebook in the news much of late. Some concerns about uh, user information and access to other entities. So they're going to be digging into that. Uh, in the meantime, uh, just a quick check on Facebook shares. They're up about 2.5%. Our print team has already sat down, too, uh, with Sandberg, and uh, she has said that a few advertisers have paused spending as they wait for the company to answer questions uh, on user privacy. So we're going to hear more from Sheryl Sandberg in just a moment. Quick check on the financial markets for you on this Thursday. Dow Jones Industrial Average, it is up 1.2%, a gain of 283 points. The risk trade back on again. S&P 500 up 23 points, up nine-tenths of a percent. And the NASDAQ 100 also higher, up about six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq up 44 points at 70.85. As I mentioned, Facebook shares, they're up about 2.5%. Our Emily Chang getting ready to sit down with the chief operating officer of Facebook. They have certainly been in the news much as of late. Let's get to Emily. Thank you. We are here at Facebook headquarters with Cheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook. Cheryl, thank you so much for doing this. Obviously, you're making a lot of changes. You're making the policies more clear. You've also just revealed that Potentially everyone on Facebook, 2 billion plus people, could have had their public profiles scraped. Can you put the genie back in the bottle at this point, or is this all too little too late? Well, let me address that specific issue and then talk more generally. On that specific issue, we had a feature where you could look up people by name or by email, and that was important for finding people. And someone made a directory they shouldn't have made with that information. But to be very clear and specific, all of that was public information. That was information that was already publicly available on Facebook. Now, to your broader question, we know that we did not do a good enough job protecting people's data. And I'm really sorry for that, and Mark's really sorry for that. And now what we're doing is taking really strong action. 
Starting Monday, we're going to be rolling out, starting the process of rolling out to people all over the world, right at the top of their newsfeed, all the apps they've connected to, and a very easy way to delete those apps. And as part of that, we're going to tell anyone who might have had their data affected or assessed by Cambridge Analytica who they are. We're taking very strong steps to restrict more data that apps historically have had access to. And we're looking beyond apps. We announced yesterday that we're taking steps to shut down certain use cases in groups and pages and search and events. These are just the latest steps. This is going to be a long process. We are systematically looking at all the ways Facebook data is used. We're going to find more things. We're going to tell you about them. We're going to shut them down. And this is a forever process because security is always an arms race. You build, someone tries to misuse, you build, they try to misuse a new way. And we're committed to this for the very long run. Mark has personally taken responsibility. He said, we didn't take a broad enough view of what our responsibility is. That was a huge mistake. It was my mistake. How much do you feel personally responsible? I feel deeply personally responsible because there are real mistakes that we made and that I made. And I think when you take a step back and you think about what's happened here, for a long time we were really focused on building social experiences. And a lot of good happened because of those. And when we found problems, we would shut down that problem. So the specific case of the Friends of Fen sharing that happened with Cambridge Analytica, that specific case was shut down in 2015. But what we didn't do until recently, and what we're doing now, is just take a broader view, looking to be more restrictive in ways data could be misused. We also didn't build our operations fast enough, and that's on me. We had 10,000 people working in security at the beginning of the year. At the end of this year alone, we will more than double to 20,000. We are massively investing in smart technology, and we're doing all of this to make sure that we get to a place where we can proactively protect people's data. Facebook has constructed a business model that leverages personal data that users share with Facebook, and you are the chief architect of that. Assuming the business model will evolve as a result of all these changes, how will that impact the bottom line? How will that impact profitability? We've never run this company for short-term gains, and we've never run this company to maximize profits. We run this company for the long-term health of our community and business. We announced two quarters ago in earnings that these investments are big, and they will impact profitability. And that's okay with us, because it's the right thing to do. We How want much? to make these investments. We'll update at the next quarter. So, you know, talk a little bit about you mentioned that a few advertisers have paused their spending as a result of this. How big is that pause? Can you give us any color? It's a few advertisers, but what matters is not how big it is. What matters is the questions they're asking. So advertisers are people. They're people who use Facebook. So are investors. And everyone wants to know the same thing, which is, are you protecting people's data? I think the advertisers and people who use Facebook also want to know that the good things will continue. And those are really important as well. Earlier this week, I was in Houston. I met this incredible man, Ramon. I went to his local taco store. When Hurricane Harvey happened, he had lots of food but no power. So he used Facebook to find a competitor who had a taco truck, teamed up with him, and then they used Facebook to drive around and find people who needed food. Now, those people were publicly sharing their location on Facebook. And what people want to know from us is, are we going to take steps to be more protective and more proactive? And the answer to that is a firm yes. But we're also going to take steps to make sure that the good that happens on Facebook can still happen. 
With all that we know now, do you believe that Facebook played a decisive role in electing Donald Trump? There's a lot of concern about what happened in this election. We are certainly concerned about the foreign interference on our, on our platform. The overall picture here, I don't think anyone knows yet, but it's an important question. I think it's one that's going to be studied for years and years to come. Where we're focused now is taking the lessons of past elections and making sure we apply them going forward. Foreign interference. You may have seen earlier this week, we took very strong steps to take Russian IRA content off our site. That was the content that was in the U.S. election that we did not find quickly enough. But now we're analyzing ahead. And we found 270 pages and accounts linked to them that were deceptive in Russian, targeted mostly at Russians. Our message is very clear. There is no place for this deceptive content for these troll farms anywhere in the world. We took this down in Russia. We're looking for others from other similar groups, and we're going to take them down anywhere in the world. Mark has been asked if he's the right person to lead Facebook. Do you believe that he is? He said he is. Um, do you agree? I believe deeply in Mark. Mark had a vision for what social services and social sharing could be, and that vision remains really important. Mark also, along with me and all of us, take full responsibility for what's happening here. And we're making a very important shift. We're going to keep building social products because sharing is so important to people all over the world. And we're going to be much more proactive. Emily, I'm not going to sit here and say we won't find more problems. We will. We are going to continue to find problems. We are going to continue to shut down situations when we find them. And this is a forever thing, because security is an arms race. This is something that we're signed up for, not just now, but on an ongoing basis. Mark Zuckerberg said he hasn't seen any meaningful impact in use. But we all have friends who have taken Facebook off their phone, who are using Instagram instead, who've sworn off social media. How do you explain that? We take that really seriously. For me, personally, you know, if someone would wake up this morning or yesterday morning and say, I don't want to use Facebook, any Facebook anymore because I don't trust them, that's something I take as seriously as possible. And what I would say to them is that we're going to work hard to regain your trust. This is going to be not just a one-time thing, not one moment in time, but a long and ongoing battle. And there's a lot of good done on Facebook. We want to make sure that people feel confident and comfortable and know that they can share safely. All right. Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg, thank you so much for joining us here on Bloomberg Today. It's great to have you. Thank you for coming, Emily. Guys, I'll send it back to you. All right. You've been listening to a live interview with Facebook Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg talking with our Emily Chang, anchor of Bloomberg Technology. I was just putting out on Twitter some of the, the highlights, if you will, from that interview. Sheryl Sandberg saying, and Emily asked about the future and confidence that Cheryl has in Mark Zuckerberg and Sandberg saying, I believe deeply in Mark Zuckerberg's leadership. Uh, also saying that they are learning the lessons of past elections, talking about the meddling uh, by, by various entities, including uh, Russians and, and trolling operations. Also saying that there's no place for this deceptive content at Facebook and saying that they're going to take them down anywhere in the world uh, and saying that security is an arms race. And I think, you know, we've heard this from a lot of guests talking about that the next arms race or the current arms race is really having to do with cybersecurity. We've certainly seen the consequences of it, uh, and it sounds like uh, this is certainly front and center when it comes to Facebook. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 